Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Douglas Grotheis on some world religions and how they contrast with Christianity. So Buddha pointed towards Nirvana and said, here's a path to Nirvana. It's hard. It's long. Jesus pointed, in essence, to himself and said, believe on me and you can have eternal life because I am the resurrection and the life. Douglas Grotheis next. Longtime Denver Seminary professor Dr. Douglas Grotheis believes it's essential to understand the basics of some of the world's major religions, not only so we're better able to communicate with adherents of them, but also to help us grow in our own faith. Coming up, I'll talk with him about his new book, World Religions in Seven Sentences. Dr. Grotheis, tell us how this book came about. Well, it's part of a series of books that InterVarsity has done using the technique of sentences. So I wrote the first one called Philosophy in Seven Sentences, and I took famous sentences from philosophers such as Descartes, I think, therefore I am, and used that as a window into their philosophy. So InterVarsity has done several other books in this series, like Church History in Seven Sentences, The New Testament in Seven Sentences, and I propose doing this one, World Religion in Seven Sentences. So they are primers or introductions into significant topics. They're not meant to be textbooks, really, or the final word on anything, but a way for people to start to think about important topics from a Christian viewpoint. And the seven sentences approach, and you explain this in your book, but it's not intended as a, if you will, a reduction of any one religion or even a distillation necessarily to just Mm -hmm. a a mere statement. So what is the main intent or the idea of why just a sentence? Right. Well, I think some statements are more revelatory of of philosophies and worldviews than others. So it's not that we just spend uh, a whole chapter looking at one sentence. That would be pretty boring. But, (laughs) you know, we look at the sentence in relationship to the larger philosophy or the larger worldview. So it's like a an entry point, you might say. And I think it's it's worked pretty well. I came up with the idea, uh, for better or for worse, mm. and InterVarsity has used it for several books. Well, what is the value, then, of knowing about the world's religions? I mean, if we're a, a Christian, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the Bible, uh, Jesus said he is the truth. What What is the value of knowing about uh, mm-hmm. these other religions, and how much do we need to know? Well, we live in a religiously plural world. Some places are more pluralistic than others. If you live in a kind of a cosmopolitan area, such as I do in Denver, Colorado, you'll be running into people who are Buddhists and Hindus and Jewish people and so on, maybe Muslims. So we are to have a reason for the hope that is within us that we give to people when people ask us why we're Christians. So it's good to know something about the other faiths. We want to know the most, of course, about our own Christian faith and the Bible and learn how to present the gospel. But I think of Paul of Mars Hill in Acts 17, you can tell by how he addressed the philosophers there that he understood what they believed, and then he matched that up against the Christian worldview. So it's helpful, especially in our pluralistic environment, to know something about the other uh, philosophies out there and the other worldviews. So that's why I wrote these two books, uh, Philosophy in Seven Sentences and world religion in seven sentences. And I appreciate uh, what you say, and that is that, uh, well, what you're not saying is that all religions teach the same thing or they're all uh, equally Mm -hmm. true. 
Some people believe that. I wrote a booklet many years ago called Are All Religions One? And I argue there that they are not. Uh, religions have some sense of the sacred, they have a code of conduct, they have rituals, etc. However, when it comes to the doctrines or the truth claims of religions, uh, they're quite different in many ways. Now, with some, if you compare them, there's a fair amount of overlap, like with Christianity and Judaism. But if you compare, let's say, Christianity and Hinduism, mm -hmm. uh, there's not that much overlap. So the first thing to do when we're wanting to witness about our beliefs is really listen to the person you're talking to, because as I say in the book, there are different types of Judaism, different types of Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on. So whoever you're talking to is an expert on what he or she believes. But it's good to have a background, basic ideas on these other world religions for the sake of witness. Speaking of that, uh, just kind of one point to touch on is they can't all be true because they have differing truth claims. Exactly. Right. So it would be nice if we could say that religions are just pretty much on the same level as hobbies. <laughs> so, you know, you like target shooting and I like to ride my bike. There's no contradiction there <laughs> unless, you know, you, you, you shoot me while I'm riding my bike. But uh, religions are not hobbies. They make truth claims about the ultimate reality, about the human condition, about spiritual liberation, about codes of conduct. So we should be serious about the truth claims of the different religions because each of one, each one of them claims to tell us what reality is and how we should rightly relate to reality. So I think a thinking person, and we should all be critical thinkers, should consider these truth claims and uh, want to side with the perspective that makes the most sense, has the most evidence, and is the most compelling. And of course, as a Christian philosopher, I believe that Christianity is. So I've tried to be fair to these other religions, but I certainly compare them to the Christian viewpoint. And in each chapter, I'll give something of an apologetic argument why the particular religion has weaknesses or inadequacies and why I think the Christian perspective about God and the human condition and salvation and so on makes makes better makes a better case and makes more sense. Well, my guest is Dr. Douglas Grothuis, and he's a professor at Denver Seminary. We're talking about his new book, World Religions in Seven Sentences, a small introduction to a vast topic. And uh, I think in our in our brief time that we have together, Dr. Grothuis, perhaps we should move right into these yes. seven. And the first one that you address is atheism, and people might say, well, wait a minute, a atheism, you, you have it in a book about religions, but atheism is, mm -hmm. is the belief that there there is no God, so why atheism? Yes, I put that in there because if atheism is true, then all the religions are false. Now, there are some religions that do not teach there is a personal God, such as Buddha, Buddhism and Taoism, but all religions claim there is some kind of a sacred realm, and atheism claims that all that exists is the universe. Nature is all that there is, so uh, there's no trinity there's no allah and there's no Tao of Taoism. there's no nirvana of buddhism and i took the statement from frederick nietzsche the famous atheist god is dead and that's part of a parable that he gives in one of his books called the madman and it's really quite brilliant and he says if there is no god then there are no objective moral values there's no meaning to history there's no afterlife and he thinks we have to really fess up to all that. And I, he was quite insightful in that if you are an atheist, then 
all the beliefs that Christianity upholds have to be dropped. Because if there is no God, there's no creation, there's no final judgment, we're not made in the image and likeness of God, and so on. So, Nietzsche had several arguments against Christianity. I deal with some of them. Uh, one of them is that Christianity is anti-nature. Mm. That it's so concerned with God in heaven that it doesn't really honor or value nature. Now, that's just not true, because we see in Genesis that God created everything in six six days, and he says it is very good. And, of course, the fall occurs, so sin affects the world, but the world remains originally good, and Jesus came as a bona fide human being. So, God would not incarnate in a world that had no value whatsoever. That would be the Gnostic view, that he couldn't really be physical because the physical is bad. So, Nietzsche really misconstrues Christianity on that account. And he also says that Christianity can't be true because God is not obvious enough to us, because it's too easy to not believe in God. This is called the hiddenness of God objection. And it's been revived. It's been really worked through the last 30 years in philosophy of religion. But I think the problem with that is that we have what you could call cognitive freedom. That is, God has revealed enough of himself to make belief natural, but we are not absolutely compelled. We can resist the evidence that God gives us in the external world and in our inner life. Romans 1 and 2 teaches that. We can resist it. So we have the cognitive freedom to pursue what God has revealed or to deny it. So I don't think that his two basic attacks on Christianity hold up, but I do think he was quite wise in telling us that if there is no God, uh, then there's really no purpose, value, meaning, or significance to life. The only meaning there is is the meaning that you yourself would create. So in some ways, Nietzsche is the the father or the grandfather of atheistic existentialism. Mm. And, and so uh, there's so much that could be asked, and I want to I want to hopefully ask you about these others. Uh, is there a thought or a seed, a pebble, if you will, as some like to call it, something that you would leave uh, a person who would say they're an atheist to consider about Christianity? Well, I, I would have a whole uh, forest worth of things to say, not just a pebble. <laughs> <laughs> If I had enough time. And the first thing I would I would say is that if atheism is true, uh, life is meaningless and really nihilism is the result. There's nothing that has any objective value. But we realize that some things are valuable. Friendship is valuable. Love is valuable. Uh, we have yearnings for fulfillment and so on. And all those would have to be rejected as illusions if there is no God. And then on the other side of it, I would say we have tremendous evidence for God from science and philosophy began to exist out of nothing a finite time ago. The universe is fine-tuned for life. You find the evidence of a designer in biology, in the cell, in the information of, of the DNA code and so on. And I've got about 250 pages defending the existence of God in my big apologetics book. But I think especially for people that look up to science, you can say, well, did you know that there is a lot of scientific evidence for the creation and the design of the universe? So it's not a leap of faith. It's not anti-scientific to be a believer in God at all. And plus, there's all the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament and uh, 
the uniqueness and finality of Jesus, his his death and resurrection, you know, there's so much to say. But maybe the first thing I'd say is, well, if you think there is no God, then tell me why you don't think there is a God. It shouldn't be the default position. And did you realize the implications philosophically and existentially of atheism? They're really nihilism. And nihilism is a bitter pill to swallow. And that is? What is nihilism? Yeah, the belief that nothing has any real meaning, value, or significance. Mm, that sounds pretty bleak. <laughs> yeah, it basically means nothingism. Mm. Yeah, so it's pretty hard to uh, have any sense of direction in life if you're a nihilist or any respect for human life as special in nature if you're a nihilist. And it really leads to despair and it can lead to uh, anarchy and so on. Mm. Well, I'd like to move along and see how many of these we can talk about. I'm not sure if yeah. we'll get to everyone, Dr. Grotheis, but Judaism obviously um, arises uh, in the Old Testament of, of the scriptures. Uh, the, the sentence that you use mm -hmm. there is, I am who I am. What can you, how would right. you introduce us to Judaism and, and that sentence? Yes, what I took was the name that God reveals in the burning bush to Moses in Exodus 3. Moses says, what is your name? Who is the one who will deliver your people from their bondage? And God says, I am who I am. Now, that means a lot, and it's a little bit mysterious in some ways, but what I focus on is the fact that the God of the Jews, and of Christians too, of course, mm -hmm. is a, a personal and revelational being. Uh, to use a term younger people like to use, God's relatable, meaning you can relate to God because he is a God who speaks and acts. He's not some mystical, unknown something that we can't use words to describe. He tells us who he is. I am who I am. So he's a self-conscious, knowing, acting, speaking being. After all, Moses sees the burning bush that's not consumed, and then he hears a voice, and he begins to have a conversation. And we, as as Christians or Jews, may take that serious, uh, may take that um, uh, for granted, but it's so significant because neither Hinduism nor Buddhism nor even Taoism has this idea of a personal, relational God who speaks and acts. God is some kind of a mystical presence or transcendent other uh, that we can't describe and who doesn't reveal himself to us, but... Uh, the God of the whole Bible, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, is a God who speaks and a God who makes himself known through nature, through scripture. He makes covenant uh, with his people in the Old Testament and so on. So I emphasize that point that the God of the Hebrew Bible is a God who makes truth known to creation and to his people. And just for those uh, it, that might be wondering, maybe I'll just jump ahead and come back to some that have more of their roots in, in, in the Eastern Hemisphere, that of Hinduism and Buddhism, Taoism. But Christianity, before Abraham was, I am, uh, Jesus referencing uh, Abraham, of course, uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Can you tell us about the significance of Jesus' statement there, and then, if you will, contrast it with, yes. with Judaism? Yeah, I think it makes a beautiful connection with Judaism because in that passage in John 8, Jesus is in a dispute with some of the 
religious experts of his day and he ends up saying uh, before abraham was i am and they're scandalized by that they try to stone him for blasphemy and it's because he's identifying himself with the god who revealed himself to moses and they know that and if he is not that god then he's blaspheming if he is in fact that god incarnate then he's speaking the truth and the proper response would have been worship and we find several accounts in the gospels where jesus followers worship him we find that in matthew 28 after the resurrection it says some some worshiped him uh, and some doubted interestingly so i'm really drawing a connection there between this personal relatable speaking being who revealed himself to moses and of course through the prophets and through the great acts of god the parting of the red sea and so on i'm relating that god to jesus simply because jesus himself did that you know there's some people who say well jesus never claimed to be god he said he was the son of god well he did claim to be god here in john 8 and there are other passages as well in mark 2 he claims to have the authority on earth to forgive sins and jews knew that only god could forgive sins so we have a case that he claimed to be god and then the issue is was he right or was he wrong and if he was wrong then he has to either be a liar he knew he wasn't god but he pretended to be or he has to be insane and there would be no reason for a first century jew to pretend to be god when he knows he isn't because after all you might get stoned you know yeah people will think you're blaspheming there's no reason to lie in that way and the idea that he was somehow mentally unhinged doesn't fit the facts of the wisdom and intelligence of his teaching his compassion for people and so on so it's basically back to this classic argument uh jesus was a liar or a lunatic or lord and he was lord that's the best inference we can draw from the gospels and from the rest of the new testament and i defend that at more length in my book christian apologetics mm. Well, the book we're discussing today, the author, my guest, Dr. Douglas Grotheis, is World Religions in Seven Sentences, a small introduction to a vast topic, and uh, there, there are three which have uh, roots definitely in um, other parts of our world. Of course, they're very prominent as well in in the United States, in the Western world at, too, but I'd like to ask you as, as much as we have time, first of all, Hinduism and the uh, sentence, you are that, it's probably not going to be very familiar to many people. What can you tell us? Right. Well, Hinduism is a very diverse and ancient religion. It has a number of different schools, but the school of Hinduism that's probably influenced the West the most is called non-dualism. And we can contrast that with uh, the biblical teaching that God is a personal and relational God who is transcendent. He's the creator and we are the creation. The non-dualistic school of Hinduism says rather that there is no distinction between God and the universe. Everything is one. Another word for this is monism mm. or oneism. So the statement, thou art that, or you are that, uh, used to be translated thou art that in some of the older translations is from a hindu scripture called the upanishads and there's a conversation and a father is trying to impress his son with the fact that he is not different from nature he's not different from god so you are that you are the one you are one with god but god is called brahman 
And Brahman is nothing like the God of the Bible. Brahman is an impersonal and uh, transcendent, but really unknowable entity. So we are supposedly one with Brahman. They, you have a part of, or an element of Brahman within yourself, which is called Atman. But Atman is really identified with and identical to Brahman. So instead of a creator-creation distinction and needing a mediator, because we've sinned against God, that's where Christ comes in, as God incarnate, we are all divine. And the problem we have as human beings is not sin against God, but it's ignorance. Mm. We don't know our true identity. So people that hold to this form of Hinduism, which comes into the United States through things like transcendental meditation and other teachings, will try to find God within themselves through meditation and yoga instead of lifting their hands, their empty hands of faith to a savior outside of themselves, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a very different concept of God than what the Bible teaches, a different concept of salvation. And I also give a critique of this idea that somehow the individual can be one with God, because supposedly the ultimate reality is non-dual. There's no distinction between one thing and another thing. Everything is one. But we experience ourselves as different from other people, as different from nature, as having limits. So to say that we are both limited and unlimited at the same time is a contradiction, so it can't be true. The biblical teaching is that we're creatures of God. We're made in God's image and likeness, but we are sullied by sin. We're all east of Eden. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and through the works of the law shall no one be justified. So we need a Savior outside of ourself, and that's the good news of the gospel message, that, that God so loved the world. He sent his only Son, that whoever believes on him might not perish but have everlasting life. So the biblical view is that God is just and loving. He's a personal being. And so when we see the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we see both love and justice. We see the love of God and the Father sending the Son and the Son obeying the Father and wanting to come to make atonement for us. We see that in Philippians 2. But also the justice of God was served by the punishment that Jesus took on our behalf. So it is a unique and beautiful and liberating message. And whatever truths you might find in other religions, they cannot match this great revealed truth of Scripture, which is really the most important truth. And that is the gospel, the good news, the glorious good news that while we are all ruined sinners and uh, under the judgment of God, that God himself and Jesus came to live a life for us, to die to atone for our sins, and was vindicated in his effort through the resurrection and the ascension. So that's really what I'm arguing for through the book. I want to be fair to these other religions and explain them, but I am comparing them to uh, the incomparable, <laughs> sounds like a paradox, I'm comparing them to the incomparable message of the gospel. You know, we can make comparisons among religions, but the gospel message is something utterly different than you'll find in any other philosophy or any other religion. 
Well, it looks like we won't have time to touch on everyone, but I'd like to at least ask you about one more. I, I, I understand, of course, Hinduism has its roots primarily in India, but of course, many people have, have brought that religion to the United States, so it's very prominent here, right. as well as are all of these. Uh, one other one I'd like to ask you about is Buddhism, and, and obviously mm -hmm. it is it is seen in, in, in various Asian countries prominently, um, but very, again, it's been um, accepted by many here or brought here or accepted in mm -hmm. the United States and in the Western world in general. The phrase, the sentence you used used for Buddhism is, life is suffering. And, and what right. can you tell us uh, in the yeah. short minutes we have left to uh, help us to... Yes. Well, Buddhism comes out of Hinduism, and there's a man named Siddhartha Gautama who was disappointed with Hinduism, so he struck out on his own to find enlightenment. And he supposedly did by discovering what are called the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths begins with the first one, which is life is suffering. And then suffering is caused by craving. And we can alleviate suffering by alleviating craving. And there's a path of basically right thinking and right action that leads to liberation. And liberation is to attain something called nirvana, which is a state of being. It's not a person, place, or thing. It's being freed from the world of craving, being freed from the world of space and time and so on. So it's not like a resurrection of the body. It's getting beyond this world entirely. So you might think that life is suffering is kind of a non-starter for a religion. It's not very <laughs> positive or happy. Right. But Buddhism really takes suffering seriously. It's a very philosophical religion. It has nothing to do with God or a savior. Buddha was considered a sage. So suffering is just a fact of existence. Buddhism doesn't explain why it exists. Christians explain it on the basis of the fall. Uh, the Buddha is not considered a savior. He's a teacher, a sage, someone who taught the Dharma, it's called. So if you realize that you can't fix this world, this world is really not redeemable, the problem is within yourself, you have to detach from the things of this world. And if you subsequently uh, detach, realizing that you know you need to detach from it, then s supposedly eventually you can get beyond what's called the wheel of samsara or reincarnation. Karma drives reincarnation, but the goal is to get away from that entirely and to attain the state called nirvana. So I compare Jesus and Buddha. Some people say they really taught the same thing just using different methods or different terms, but they had extremely different worldviews. Uh, the Buddha was either atheist or agnostic. He didn't claim to be a prophet, didn't claim to be an incarnation, didn't claim to be a savior where, of course, Jesus was a monotheist. He said, our Father who art in heaven, that's how we should pray. And he claimed, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And he said, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. So Buddha pointed towards nirvana and said, here's a path to nirvana. It's hard. It's long. Jesus pointed, in essence, to himself and said, believe on me, and you can have eternal life because I am the resurrection and the life. And he backed it up by his miracles, by the fulfillment of prophecy, by his death on the cross to atone for our sin and through his resurrection. You can find certain insights in Buddhism, and many people today are influenced by the Buddhist teaching of mindfulness, of making the mind more calm and tranquil. You can find a few tips or pointers there, but uh, 
the Buddha was not a savior and uh, does not offer what Jesus Christ offers the world. Christianity offers a total change. Uh, for example, Islam says if you just confess God, there's one God and Muhammad is his prophet, you're a Muslim, but nothing inside of you changes. Uh, same with, with Judaism as is practiced today. Uh, but what is so significant about the Christian message is that it's not just a set of beliefs that differs from other religions. It is that. It's not just a unique message, but it's a unique reality of being born again. Or as Paul says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're united to Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. The righteousness of Christ is given to you. Your unrighteousness is taken by him on the cross. It's a radical change of being that is offered, not just a true set of beliefs. Absolutely that. Not just a unique set of beliefs. It is absolutely that compared to other religions, but a new reality. Uh, and that's something that I have been living out and experiencing now for uh, over 47 years as a Christian. The Holy Spirit really does get inside of you and work on you and lead you and guide you and console you through the worst and the best of life. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Douglas Groteis, professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary and author of the new book, World Religions in Seven Sentences. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again on Monday at this same time for another edition of His People.